continue reading from Luke's Gospel, uh, the 10th chapter, being Luke here for a couple of weeks, um, the mission of the 70. We'll read the first 11 verses and skip to verse 16 to 20. <clears throat> After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy return with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all, over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here ends the reading from God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Well, God, we give you thanks for your word, which draws us together. Which Your word, which draws us to it so that we may some, come to know something of your presence in our lives. Open our hearts and our minds to its mystery and its truth. Shape us and form us as your people. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I like that this passage comes around the time where we're starting to pick stuff. We talk about harvests when stuff starts to get ripe on the vine. Katie went out to her dad's garden. She always likes when I talk, mention her name in the sermon. She went out to her dad's garden uh, this past week, and she spent a couple hours, and she picked a whole bunch of, like, purple hole peas and okra and squash and cucumber, and, you know, you sweat for it at this time of year, but it was, you know, just the good stuff. It just cooks different. Uh, I'm in charge of the garden that's outside here, and I'm always amazed at how small the window of time is for you to pick stuff when it's ripe. Like, I wait for the okra to get big. But you can wait one day too long, and it gets tough and thready, and you don't want to eat it. 
Tomatoes the same way. I like tomato sandwiches. I want them nice and big for my tomato sandwiches. And one day they're fine. I think, all right, one more day, and then they split. Or a squirrel knocks it down and takes one bite and just leaves it there to mock me. Um, but that's how it goes. If you pick it too soon, you know, it may not taste quite as good or be quite as right. But if you wait a day or two long, too long, it might not be any good at all. Or you can show up at exactly the right time and something else beats you to it. But when the harvest is right, it's time to go. You got to pick it when it's right. Jesus is sure that the harvest is right. It's time to go. There's not time to waste. I assume that when Jesus is talking about harvest and he's lifting up this metaphor, that he's talking about people, harvesting people. And he's saying that now is the time to share the good news of the kingdom of God that has come near in Jesus, to gather people around it. And what I mean when I say kingdom or or kingdom may be better, um, so that let's get clear on what it means so it's not a church word that we just nod and pretend we know. I think what he means is the just and peaceable interdependence of all living things. The just and peaceable interdependence of all living things. It is you and I discovering our relatedness and us fashioning the kind of life together and the kind of life in the world where there is just and peaceable agreement and all of God's creation can flourish. That's people, that's the land, that's all of creation in harmony. In Isaiah, it talks about um, the lion shall lay down with the lamb and uh, a little child shall uh, put its hand over, you know, that kind of peaceable kingdom where things are at, at peace with one another. And Jesus comes and he gives himself as the embodiment of what it looks like when that kingdom gets near to you, when it starts to rub elbows with you, when it starts to brush up against you and you get hints of what that kingdom looks like when it's in its fullness. Jesus says, comes as the embodiment of that. And this is what Jesus sends his people out to share. He sends them out to embody this themselves. He says, when they receive you, they receive me. When they receive me, they receive the one who sent me. And he gives them instructions about what that embodiment looks like, which I'm going to get to in a second. But first, I want to talk about the harvest. Because if the harvest is people, in what sense is it people? Like, is it as in numbers? Like, we need to, we need to harvest a lot of people. Because we need a critical mass of people necessary for this movement that we are building to have some power. Because if we don't have people and bodies and numbers, then we can't move or shake or get the attention of any of the people in power in our community. And sometimes you just don't have credibility until you have some numbers, some faces, some voices, some votes, some bodies who will show up and say, this matters to us. Or did he mean harvesting people in the term, in the sense of being converted? Like turning people from lives that are incomplete or, or not quite um, 
uh, filled with purpose or outright sinful so that they can be won over to our team because we kind of have something that's right and get folks to order their lives around religion. You know that language, right? That language like the harvest is go and make disciples, right? We kind of leap to that Matthew 28. Go and, and get people to be like you. In the 21st century, in the West, in America, where church attendance is, as a rule, shrinking, maybe the harvest means church members. Butts for the seats. <laughs> Committee members. People we can nominate and elect to do stuff. People who will tithe. People who will bring children fill out our youth groups and our Sunday schools, people who have extra time to give because more hands make light work. And so the longer you play with that image of harvest, the more it sounds like we are collecting people for the sake of having a collection. And the more we start to see it that way, the, more, the less I think it it gets around what Jesus is describing. It starts to sound like acquisition. And by acquisition, I mean that to think of people as a harvest is to go out and acquire something, to bring one thing, uh, to bring that thing from one place to another, to bring it, bring it from a place of wrongness to a place of rightness. It creates a kind of an us who has the moral high ground and a them that needs saving. And that dynamic falls apart after a while. It's had an oppressive and dangerous history, this acquiring of people, harvesting people, bringing them into something, showing them a kind of enlightenment that they don't possess yet. Folks have to be brought into salvation and enlightenment. And this is, I think, the real opportunity which I'm getting to. What is this harvest that Jesus is talking about? I think the harvest to which Jesus is referring is the hunger, the thirst of the people for the radical love of God to be woven into their life together. I think what he is saying is ripe is the hunger of the people for something larger, something more meaningful and purposeful and more just and more loving than what they have. The opportunity is not necessarily for the acquisition of people, but to speak to the hunger of the people for the liberating good news of God that is embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. It's to offer a word that speaks to their desire to have our lives reordered and restored, to have their relationships with their neighbors put right. Maybe Jesus sees that there is a hunger for people who want to have better relationships with their neighbors, the neighbors who are like them and the neighbors who are not like them, the neighbors who, who, uh, who vote like them and the neighbors who don't vote like them, to just have a more peaceable relationship with their neighbors. Maybe he sees a hunger among the people to have dignity and opportunity in their work to work hard and to enjoy the fruits of their labels, maybe to live free of the threat of violence day after day after day and destruction heaped on human beings by other human beings. You know, folks can be hungry for those things. 
I would say that every human being is hungry for those things. We just go about chasing them in different ways. And sometimes folks get fed up with systems that promise those things over and over and over again, but just keep delivering the same old cycles of poverty and inequality and violence. And when we get fed up with trying all the other things except the kingdom of God, then Jesus says the harvest is ripe. There's an opening. And so when, I th when he says the harvest is plentiful, I think he means the people are ready. To have their broken hearts mended, to have their lives restored. There's a window of opportunity here. Perhaps it is that people are ready to let go of trusting that Rome will ever do the right thing. Or that the churches they've been going to will ever get to work changing things instead of keeping things the same. Jesus thinks so. He said, I think there's an opportunity here. It's a window. But it's like the okra and the tomatoes. What happens if you miss the window? The harvest is plentiful. The people are hungry. But there's not many who are willing to go. Which makes you begin to consider his instructions. And it starts to make sense when you consider the instructions and what he tells the disciples to do. Go with no purse, no bag, no sandal. Don't take anything with you. You don't have any resources. You don't have any PowerPoint. You don't have any video. You don't have any social media. You don't have your savings account. Don't even take shoes. Rely completely on the hospitality of strangers. And be vulnerable to rejection. And when people shut you down and, and they reject you, just move on. Dust the feet off your shoes and just move on. If you, if you share something that's deep in your heart, if you bless a place or a people and they don't want to receive it, it'll come back to you. You haven't lost anything. The things that Jesus describes his disciples doing require conviction. You have to go with a sense of purpose that it matters. They require courage because the outcome is not guaranteed. They require discipline because it's hard stuff to do. And it requires resilience because you're going to have to keep your, you're going to mess up. Other people are going to mess up. You're going to have to keep trying over and over and over again. They require joy. You can't go at it with your head hung down. It requires love because you can't go at it unless you really love people. And you have to want to serve. They require all the things that Jesus sends us, gifts that Jesus sends us through the Holy Spirit, such that what people see in the lives of Jesus' disciples is not the disciples, but Jesus himself. In other words, they don't see Marilyn anymore, or Mike anymore, or Tammy anymore, or Susan anymore. They see the one who sent you instead. And it requires the kind of formation that comes with being shaped by the life and the witness of Jesus himself. Because the implication is that by knowing people who conduct themselves this way, knowing people who go out in the way that Jesus describes, the world will be ready to meet Jesus himself. In other words, I'm going out, and if people learn to meet you, then they'll be ready to meet me. So then the question is, 
what would your life have to be like for folks not to see you, but to see the one who sent you? Now, I'm not the most astute cultural observer. Most of what I see happening in the world, I see because other folks point it out to me. But there is as clear and as ripe a harvest of hungry spirits that belong to vulnerable bodies now as there has been in a generation. I don't mean that we have an opportunity to evangelize people. That may happen. But that's a byproduct. I mean that we have the opportunity to speak to the disillusionment, hurt, and anger that lots of people are feeling. We have an opportunity to embody the kind of determined and pointed love that Jesus sent his initial disciples out into the world to embody. And the harvest is ripe. There's a window because lives are at stake. People's bodies are at risk because of the color of their skin, or because the land on which they were born, or because of their sexuality. And folk are watching. They're watching the people who claim that Jesus sent them out into the world to see if they look at all like the one who sent them. And I really don't believe that the majority of our neighbors want to be fighting the same fights we've been fighting for the last 400 years. I just don't believe that. But if they see disciples sent out in the world two by two who mirror all the same fears and prejudices they see acted out over and over again, if they see disciples who care more about avoiding conflict than, they, more, than they, they do about teaching the truth, if they see disciples who are going about doing church business that is a t detached from what's happening in their communities and in their neighborhoods, I think the harvest will wither right there on the vine. Because we wonder why people stop showing up. And maybe that's why. The harvest has already been withering. And it's not that folks will flock in droves because it's not about the acquisition of people. It's not about butts in the seats. It's about making our lives the embodiment of what Jesus desires for the world. It's about creating the kind of disciples and the kind of community of disciples so that when people see us, they see at least some approximation of the one who sent us. And to, to take the formation that we have received at the feet of Jesus out into the world and offering it as good news to hurting and hungry people because the world's hurting and is hungry. So that question, what would your life have to look like? For when folks see you, they see less of you and they see more of the one who sent you. What would your life have to look like? Not on Sunday, but on Wednesday. in the neighborhood, in the workplace. What would your life have to look like? 
What would you, this community have to look like for folks to look at us and see the image of the one who sent us into a hurting and hungry world? Harvest is ripe. Jesus says there's plenty of folk. The problem is not that people don't want to know about God's unconditional love for them. The problem is not that people don't want to hear that there is a better and a higher way for us to live together. The problem is not that people are not hungry and thirsty for justice and equality and the, and, and the peace, peaceable way of living together. The problem is not. The problem is that we don't have enough folks willing to walk into the field living it. What would your life have to look like? Amen.